From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is taxing digital advertising. Can taxes, specifically aimed at breaking up big tech, be levied to encourage competition, innovation, and help democracy? The five largest tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Google, and Microsoft, are worth a combined $7 trillion. What economic efficiencies can be gained in the fight for fairness? Two words for you. Rethinking capitalism. My guest is Paul Rumer. He's an economics professor at New York University, and he served as the chief economist of the World Bank. He was the co-recipient of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Economics Sciences. Paul received the prize for his work for integrating technological innovations into long-run macroeconomic analysis. For the first time, this integrated ideas and innovation into economic models and clarify the societal benefits that are possible when people come together to collaborate in new ways. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Omidyar Network. Welcome to the Business Lab, Paul. It's good to be here. So United States Senator Elizabeth Warren said, and I quote, big tech companies have too much power, too much power over our economy, our society, our democracy. What is the danger of monopolies, of these large, powerful companies? Yeah, that's a that's a well-crafted sentence by the Senator Warren because it, it ends on the most important point. Uh, the real danger here is the threat to our democracy. And the, the second most important one is the threat to the social fabric that determines the quality of life for us. One of the problems with economics and the way it's approached antitrust it's neglected those two issues and focused on these very narrow questions about are firms charging too much for some service and does that mean that some people aren't using as much of it as they, they could. But that captures only a small fraction of the damage that's being done by having firms that are so large and firms that are using a particular business model this model based on targeted digital advertising, which uh, has created so many bad incentives and which creates such uh, unusual risks for our democratic system. What are some of those risks? Well, the nature of the advertising model is that these firms want to keep people engaged uh, on sc- watching the screen so that they see more ads. Uh, Facebook discovered, and this is, you know, their research has been published on this, that if they could create more contention, more animosity, more anger, people would stay engaged for uh, a longer period of time. And so we've got a business model, which is actively encouraging some of the most damaging kind of sides of, of human nature. Uh, this tribalism, this, this anger, this, uh, tendency to treat the, your opponent as, as an, an enemy who's almost in, inhuman. So, you know, this is not the way markets usually work. Uh, <laughs> when, when economists defend the market, we have this very simple idea in mind where 
Uh, I, as a buyer, give something. I give money to a seller. I get some good back. And then if I don't like what I get back, I can take my business elsewhere. None of those features are characteristic of this new market for digital services where advertising is like this, the hidden uh, method of capturing compensation for these, for these firms and users are being uh, manipulated in ways that they don't fully understand. So what kind of regulatory actions could have or should have been taken to confront the growth of some of these enormous companies. Yeah, to, to be honest, um, uh, you push back if you if you don't like this answer. But I tend to like to look forward. You know, we could look at decisions that we made in the past that were a mistake, but I think the really important ones are what should we do now? Well, yeah, to go ahead and, and challenge that, yeah. is it something that needs to be? looked at perhaps more frequently? I mean, do we have to wait until something really bad happens, until an election is almost overthrown? You know? Sure, yeah. Well, I, I, I will say, um, I, I think we've been negligent. You know, the economists and, you know, people who shape opinion, people who worry about policy, I think we're guilty of gross negligence in letting this problem fester and become so bad. So I, I think... It's very clear to me that we need to do something to stop the trajectory that we're on. And I think it's a, it's a huge uh, mistake on all of our parts that we didn't act sooner. But the real question is, what, what do we do now? Yeah, because there's two issues here, right? One is the way that these enormous companies make the money and then the enormity of these enormous yeah. companies. Yeah, well, of those two, I, I think this business model based on targeted digital advertising, which has created these enormous incentives for spying on people and collecting information. A few years ago, I started saying that you know these firms know more about me than uh, the Stasi knew about people in East Germany. And, and that was kind of like a controversial thing to say back then. You know, now everybody just accepts that. <laughs> they, they, they think this is just, oh, I don't know, kind of the inevitable uh, consequence of uh, you know, of, of market and technology, but, but they've lost the outrage and they lost, they've lost the sense of how dangerous it is to let any, you know, small group of people have that much information that they can use, uh, to, to manipulate us. Yeah. We've fallen down into this trap of thinking, well, we use these services for free. So yeah. giving them a little bit of my data, I'm okay with, but that's not really what we're talking about anymore, is it? Yeah, well, I, I think this one is is a tricky one because, uh, by and large, the cost uh, from say each person letting these companies have all this information it is not something that each individual uh, bears. It's really it's a cost to society. So letting uh, them have information from all of us means that they have uh, enormous uh, monopoly uh, power. Uh, they can collect enormous uh, returns and uh, accumulate this enormous amount of wealth that you described. But, but it also gives them the ability to, uh, for example, uh, display targeted political ads where uh, one demographic group is being shown a message from one candidate that the rest of us never see. And those ads, just like uh, <laughs> the strategy for engagement, those ads often appeal to um, animosity, tribalism, 
anger. Again, we're, we're using advertising to enhance, to develop the worst side of, of human nature. And you don't have to look very far in history to see how bad things can turn out when you amplify and normalize this very ugly, angry side of uh, our, our instincts about us versus them. So a slight shift. Um, it seems as soon as, you know, we as a society identify something as too big to fail, it fails, causing, you know, unknown and often catastrophic outcomes. I'm thinking of Boeing as an example. Yeah. So, so what, did, what do you think about Boeing and how large it's become and what that actually means? Yeah. Um, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, I wrote a paper saying the, this is the goal the, that the FAA combined with the NTSB, the National Transportation Sa- Safety Board, those two agencies were the gold standard for regulation. And we should be trying to have a similar kind of structure for regulating financial markets. Well, you know, fast forward a, a decade and a half. Um, what's happened is, is that Boeing, as this concentrated interest, was able to work through the Congress and and cite the the kind of the messages from economists about you know how regulation slows down innovation and Boeing managed to eviscerate the what used to be this very uh, effective regulatory system at, at the FAA with some oversight by the by the NTSB and you know then at Boeing as a result because there was no regulatory oversight built this really uh, kludge of an airplane that turned out to be incredibly dangerous and killed people so uh, it, it's a it's a story of the erosion of regulatory capacity that was achieved through pretty straightforward means. For example, just cutting the budget or limiting the budget at the FAA so they couldn't hire enough people to to do the the job they were assigned to do to regulate Boeing. And so this was a case where by undercutting uh, the regulation, Boeing uh, hurt its workers, uh, hurt its shareholders. Uh, killed people. Uh, it was a really, you know, terrible turn of events. But I think it's a caution for us because people who say, well, it, it, like Facebook, which is saying, well, let's just have some regulators that regulate um, the, the tech firms. Uh, what the Boeing ep- episode tells us is that a firm that's strong enough can actually uh, corrupt and eviscerate any regulatory system can capture often those regulators. So I'm very pessimistic that any regulatory uh, body can actually rein in and control these firms. And, and of course, I think that's why Facebook is, is advocating for regulation because they know that's the measure that would leave them in the strongest, uh, the strongest position. So when I started thinking about, well, what can we do about these firms? I started from the very beginning and said, we've got a system with uh, checks and balances, with a uh, kind of an executive branch where regulators would uh, sit. You've got uh, the judiciary uh, that hears antitrust cases, and you've got the legislature. You know, which of these three uh, systems is the one to use to try and um, uh, deal with the problems that we're facing? And I concluded that I think regulators would just not work because the firms we're dealing with are already way too powerful. And I also, this is a separate point that we could explore, but I also think that um, the judiciary and antitrust, traditional antitrust law is not well suited to dealing with this problem. So the, the way forward, it seemed to me, was for us as voters to say to our legislators, 
we don't want to live in a society like this where a few individuals have so much power and where they're using that power to, to, you know, kind of undermine the quality of social life and threaten our democracy. So if we said that to our legislators, we'd tell the legislators, pass a law that stops this bad behavior. And then the, the, the tax that I proposed was uh, a measure that I, you could think of other measures, but it's one measure I think that legislatures could pass that could uh, do a lot to solve the the problems that we're facing. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned um, a progressive tax yeah. on advertising. How, how would that work? So when you impose a tax, you have to anticipate that people will do things to avoid paying tax. So I designed a tax where the things they would do to try and avoid paying tax are exactly the things we want them to do. So we want this tax to be progressive. The bigger the total advertising revenue the firm collects, uh, the higher the tax rate. So if one of these firms splits itself in two, like if, if Facebook were to spin Instagram out, the total tax bill for the two firms would be smaller when they're separate compared to when it's part of one uh, combined entity. So the progressivity in the tax encourages uh, split ups, uh, spin outs. It discourages growth by acquisition. Uh, the other thing is, is that I suggested it be a tax imposed on uh, revenue from digital advertising. So if these firms don't want to pay this tax, they could shift to a subscription model, the kind of model that, that Netflix uses or a, a service like Duolingo uses so that people actually pay something to get access to some uh, some valuable service. So uh, you can do this, but this tax has to be uh, has to be big enough to uh, create a, you know a real stick that if you don't do something to change, you're going to pay a lot of tax to the government uh, if you stick with this this very damaging model. I was absolutely captivated by this this model and the fact that it's real in the U.S. state of Maryland, the state legislature is considering legislation, Senate Bill 2, to create an advertising tax on tech companies. And it works like this. A tax somewhere between 2.5% and 10% would be applied to digital ad sales in the state of Maryland on IP addresses. And that would be a huge amount of money raised, something like $250 million annually. So you were part of that effort to mm -hmm. really push this through the legislature. What did you you say in your testimony to support this idea? Uh, well, just to kind of just recap where we are, um, they've actually passed this bill. The governor vetoed it at the end of last year, but the legislature overrode the, the veto. So this bill is now um, uh, law in Maryland. It is going to be challenged by these tech companies, usually operating through some front organizations that uh, uh, that they'll use to challenge it in court. So where there's, we have some ways to go to in this fight. The fight's not over, but uh, you know the message I gave to the the, the legislators. I mean, first I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, which is what somebody there read, and then you know reached out to me about you know pursuing this idea. They were interested in this partly because they had made a commitment to significantly improve their educational system and they were looking for sources of revenue. But they also you know, understood the, the problems with big, and, big tech and uh, understood the appeal of let's go after a tax, which you know, actually is kind of targeting um, a, harm, a harmful uh, behavior. 
to set expectations, I think there's a chance that the current bill will be overturned in in court. Uh, There's going to be a lot of legal resources that are uh, deployed uh, to try and fight this. And I, what I, one of the things I told the legislators in, in private is just expect that the first, the first bill might be overturned, watch and see what this, this really somewhat politicized federal judiciary is going to say is wrong with the bill and be ready to pass a new version that uh, avoids the, the problems that uh, they, they complain about. So um, so this is a longer term uh, battle plan we, we have to have, and we shouldn't be worried about you know setbacks along the way. The other point I, I made to them was this, this point that most taxes discourage good things. You know, if you, if you, uh, imposed a tax on going to school. You know, if fewer people would go to school, that'd be a bad tax. But this is a tax which discourages a bad thing. And that's the most important kind of tax to pursue when you need revenue. And it's the way to discourage uh, bad things. I, I liken it to uh, my, my co-recipient uh, for the prize, uh, Bill Nordhaus's idea of a tax on, uh, on carbon emissions, which has the same uh, motivation, which is to stop people from doing something which is, uh, which is very harmful uh, for, for, for all of us. The other thing is, is that the tax rates that they thought were you know, politically feasible in Maryland are frankly too low to make much difference for these tech firms. Um, even if every state in the United States or the federal government adopted a tax at the rates that they're looking at, progressive from you know zero to two percent to ten percent, um, this would be like you know kind of small change for these these tech companies. So I have a a, a new proposal that I'm uh, about to launch for the for the national government, where um, we impose uh, uh, taxes that get much higher. And which uh, I think really are strong enough to change change behavior in uh, in these uh, these tech firms. And and one of the things we might want to talk about is that why it's so important to tax revenue rather than corporate income, because the corporate income tax is a is a deeply flawed and failing uh, way to try and tax corporations. And that seems to be an issue in the United States that's coming up more and more as. Companies look for creative ways to avoid paying on those corporate revenue um, yeah, numbers. Yeah. It's it's really it's really a losing battle because conceptually, uh, there's if, if income is the difference between revenue and expenditure cost. So revenue and cost, revenue and cost are incurred in different places. So you can't say where is income earned. So that creates at this level of principle. I mean, forget about how hard it is to get the information you need to you know, impose this tax. Even if you had all the information you wanted, reasonable people can differ about where income is earned because it's, it's two things. It's a difference in two things. So that creates all of this opportunity for firms to shift the legal uh, location for income and to move income to these low tax jurisdictions. So you get this race to the bottom. Different jurisdictions are competing by offering lower and lower corporate tax rates. Some people think you can patch this and try and limit this behavior. I think you're just fighting a losing battle. 
And we really need to switch to something like taxing revenue because we know where revenue is uh, collected. We know that there are ads that are that these firms get paid uh, to serve up that are shown to people in Maryland or in uh, you know in Massachusetts uh, or California. And so this empowers each of those states to tax a revenue that uh, is incurred in those states. And they don't face this issue of uh, uh, a race, a race to the bottom. So I feel that taking in this entire idea in a holistic way, it's we're increasing taxes, but we're doing it for a good reason because education needs more money. We're also doing it because those these large companies aren't paying their fair share. Ten percent may sound like a large number, but not when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So yeah, hundreds of billions, billions, sorry, billions with a B. Of course, billions <laughs> right. with a B. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is um, a start, right? So the Midyear Network is looking at how you actually um, implement various policy ideas to rebalance this inequity mm-hmm. in the data economy. Mm-hmm. This is one solution. Can you can you think of right. others? Are you looking at others? Yeah, and and it's important to emphasize that um, this will not address all of the issues we face in, uh, in, uh, associated with firms that are so large and so powerful. Apple, for example, does not capture much revenue through advertising. And it's got a very strong market position uh, that, that people may want to think about other measures that might limit the, the power of, of Apple. I, I frankly am not as worried about Apple because Apple isn't destroying our democracy and, um, uh, you know, undermining the quality of, of, of life. But, you know, there's a traditional reasons why you might not want firms that are so powerful. Uh, if you take Amazon, for example, Amazon is now collecting a growing share of its revenue through advertising, but it also had very strong positions in just being the platform for matching buyers and sellers, so so it would strong it would still be a very powerful uh, force, even if it just abandoned the digital advertising revenue. So so in both of these cases, there's room to think about other measures that could um, you know deal with the traditional problems of uh, firms that are that are too large. Um, in terms of the specific measures that one could uh, uh, employ. The one part of antitrust law that's been you know, significantly underutilized and should be brought back is merger review. It should be much harder for one of these dominant firms to acquire a new firm that could potentially grow into a competitor. So things like you know the, the Facebook purchase of Instagram or WhatsApp, um, you know, in a properly functioning system, um, those those mergers and acquisitions should should not have been uh, allowed. So that's an easy thing to do. The part of antitrust which I think is just doomed is trying to bring a lawsuit uh, and charge them with committing a crime, and then get a judge to agree to break them up based on their. Uh, "Quote crime that they've they've committed." Uh, this is a this is a very crude uh, way to you know try and limit size, and it puts judges in a position which is really untenable for them. It, it is a very complicated type of penalty to impose, and so their tendency has been even in cases where there's a clearly demonstrated violation of the antitrust law, like there was with Microsoft. Um, judges overturned in the appeals courts, they overturned 
the breakup remedy that uh, the Justice Department had proposed. And to be clear, I worked with the Justice Department in crafting this this remedy. Um, the, the appeals courts um, refused to implement something that they felt was so uh, so aggressive and uh, so uh, intrusive. And uh, I think that's the problem we'll face uh, with any lawsuit that, say, tries to now force uh, Facebook to to spin out um, Instagram. So the only way I see to get those two things uh, separate companies now is to create a very strong um, uh, a very strong incentive so that you know they'll save like ten billion dollars a year in taxes if they split it into two companies instead of running it as one company. So perhaps we should get down into these these details about a progressive tax on advertising. So if if that is a one possible lever, because breaking up the company into various, I mean, one could probably argue that Instagram itself may be too big, but certainly together, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp is too big. Um, how does that progressive tax work? And would it necessarily be federal or could it be state by state by municipality? I think that it could be either. And this is why it's so important to pick revenue, because different jurisdictions could make their own decisions on this. This has implications internationally as well. The U.S. could decide uh, how much it wants to tax ads, uh, ad revenue shown to its citizens, but Canada could pick its own, make its own decision on that. Uh, you know, Germany and France could make their own decisions. So um, we want to empower all of these different jurisdictions to make their own decisions in response to the wishes of their, you know, their, their citizens and, and, and voters. So we want to get away from a system where you have to have these international tax treaties where everybody's agreeing to do the same thing to have the, the tax system work. And that's really where we are with the, the, the corporate income tax. Um, but in terms of the, the level of taxation, I, I want to be clear about this. The, the kind of tax that I think would create a big incentive to change at, say, Google and Facebook, the two biggest firms in this market. Um, I think this has to be a tax where the average tax rate they'd pay right now, given their size, is on the order of 35%. So 35% of their revenue would be collected by the government if they don't change, if they just stick with business as usual. And to get to an average tax rate, if your tax rate is kind of gradually increasing as you come up, you know, you start with a big bracket where there's no tax at all, and then it's a, a 5% tax, 10% tax. Uh, to get an average tax rate of 35%, you need to have marginal tax rates, that, like the tax on the highest bracket of, of revenue. You need marginal tax rates that are uh, 50, 60, uh, even approaching uh, 70%. So this needs to be a very uh, aggressive tax. Uh, people will like scream uh, like stuck pigs when I you know go public, as I guess I'm doing right now about what these tax rates need to be. But there's a couple of easy ways to respond to this. I mean, one is uh, these companies will say, if you took 30 or, 30 or 40% of our revenue, you would kill us. Um, well, that's actually not true. Uh, 30 or 40% of their revenue would just uh, move them back to you know where they what they were earning in you know like 2019 2020 they've experienced enormous growth everybody thought they were viable in 2018 19 20 so it can't be true that you take away you know 30% of their revenue suddenly revenue that was great 
three years ago is now, uh, you know, impossible to live on in, in this new model. And of course, this is because their costs are mainly fixed costs. They can just scale up how many of these ads they serve up without incurring a, a lot more cost. So they could they could certainly be viable if they had to pay, you know, 30, 40% of their revenue to the to the government. And this would this would actually attract, uh, collect a a reasonable amount of revenue that could be used, say, to finance the the infrastructure bill, for example, like you know, fifty billion, sixty, you know, and and growing uh, per year in in tax revenue. The other thing about a tax that's that uh, aggressive is, is that it does mean that, um, say, a firm that might pay you know fifteen billion at the scale of of uh, Google and and uh, uh, and Facebook, it might pay you know twelve, fifteen billion dollars in tax a year if they split themselves in half. That that'll go down dramatically to you know maybe from twelve to you know six uh, billion or fifteen to six billion, and if they split themselves into four pieces, their tax bill would go down. The total tax bill across all of the surviving firms, um, the total tax bill could be as low as uh, as two billion. So it, the the and the reason to be so aggressive about this is that if these these companies you know scream as they will, the answer is just listen, guys. If you don't want to pay the tax. Just switch to a subscription model. I mean, just just don't use the ads, or um, uh, you know, if, if you don't want to pay the tax, just split yourself up into uh, independent companies. So uh, I, I think we have to be ready to tolerate um, and remain firm in the face of these you know screams of, of outrage about high marginal tax rates, and just insist that listen. We are the citizens in this country, and in a democracy, we get to decide what kind of society we're going to live in, and we don't want to live in a society that lets you continue to do what you're doing right now. And that is certainly unique characteristics of the data economy. So we we now have these issues of how do we reduce disinformation? How do we increase privacy? Rebalancing the wealth and reducing the economic dependency on these large firms, to think that you could break up one of them into four different companies and still have each one be worth $2 billion at least, right, yeah. is, is quite something else. Oh, well, worth, I mean, worth probably, um, oh, I don't know, like $25 billion, um, or, or, you know, or more. But, 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 but they're, they're, they'd collectively still be paying $2 billion a year, say, in tax. I'm sorry. You're correct. Thank you there. But uh, it, it's, um, you know, there's a, there's a movie that uh, I like from uh, called Chinatown with uh, Jack Nicholson, where at the very end of the movie, uh, something terrible happens to to an innocent woman who's who's killed, and 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 like Nicholson is like devastated, and uh, some you know some friend uh, says to him, "Forget it, Jake. It's it's Chinatown." You know the message is like, "You can't do anything. This is so complicated. The forces you're fighting are so." Uh, powerful. You can't do anything uh, about this. Well, this is kind of the message economists have been sending to, to for like decades now. It's the market. Forget it. It's the market. You can't control what the market does. If you've got these firms that are now dominating political advertising, eh, you know, forget about it. Forget it. You can't do anything. And and that's just so false. You know, as citizens, we can decide we don't want them to have that kind of power in our markets for political advertising. We don't want all of these secret targeted ads that are inflaming the passions. Uh, and and so the economists need to stop saying, like encouraging this learned helplessness amongst the, you know, the citizenry. And we need uh, to be saying it is up to us 
to decide what kind of a society we want to live in. And if we make a decision, we get our legislators to, to make, uh, make a change. And, and by the way, I think that despite the polarization we're seeing right now, this issue might be one where you could attract um, some attention from both the left and, and the right, because, uh, you know, the right has been, you know, keenly aware of the enormous power, say, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, possesses or, you know, Jack Dorsey possesses it at, uh, at Twitter. And uh, so they are now kind of shifting away from their usual defense of, well, it's the market, it's so it must be good, and recognizing, no, there's some, some aspects of this, this market equilibrium that, that we think are really um, bad. They're kind of inconsistent with the principles of you know, freedom and free speech that uh, this country was, was founded on. So I'm, I'm mildly optimistic that this is something where we could reach some kind of a consensus and actually do something. Well, uh, speaking of representation, of, of which uh, you know, America is uh, founded on, there have been rumblings in Congress holding these firms accountable. Are you hopeful that that might actually happen? Well, I think those rumblings have been, um, you know, somewhat useful in raising uh, attention. But they're mostly, so far at least, they've mostly been theater. There's really no agenda for, uh, at least there's no consensus around an agenda for what we could do. There are people like Senator Warren, Senator uh, Warner, who've been thinking about measures we could could adopt, but there's been no kind of coalescing around some some practical measure. So we need to get out, uh, get moved beyond just kind of these showpieces where we express outrage and try and you know, watch these executives squirm, we need to get to the point where we actually do something that will make a difference. And what a great call to action that is. Thank you, Paul, for joining us today on the Business Lab. Good. Well, thank you. And um, uh, this is the first time I've actually told people, no, I mean, marginal tax rates as high as like 65, 75%. So, uh, you know, you may, you may get some, uh, some animated responses when uh, um, <laughs> when you, when this goes goes live, but uh, people should also go look at my uh, my blog because I'll actually have the kind of the analytics behind this available on my blog, and they can anybody who's interested can can learn more there. That was Paul Romer, Nobel Prize winning economist and professor at New York University, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the Custom Publishing Division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and at dozens of events each year around the world. For more information about us, and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>